Hello and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that's going to take us through the first half of uh, Act 4 of King Henry V. The fourth act of Henry V, unlike most fourth acts of Shakespeare plays, is not the shortest. It is, in fact, the longest uh, act in the entire play. There's about 3,200 lines in this play and 983 of them are in this act, which is kind of extraordinary um, to me because normally like something big happens in act four in a Shakespeare play, but it's followed immediately by a much longer act five <laughs> where we digest everything that just happened and all of the things are, it's the denouement. So um, this is kind of an unusual um, structure. But without further ado, let's jump into our longest chorus speech, um, which is the chorus um, of Act Four. Take it away, Izzy, whenever you're ready. Now entertain conjecture of a time when creeping murmur and the pouring dark fills the wide vessel of the universe. From camp to camp through the foul womb of night, the hum of either army stilly sounds that fixed sentinels almost receive the secret whispers of each other's watch. Fire answers fire, and through their paley flames each battle sees the other's umbered face. Steed threatens steed in high and boastful nays, piercing the, piercing the night's dull ear. And from the tents, the armorers accomplishing the knights with busy hammers closing rivets up give dreadful note of preparation. The country cocks do crow, the clocks do toll, and the third hour of drowsy morning named. Proud of their numbers and secure in soul, the confident and overlusty French do the low-rated English play at dice, and chide the cripple tardy-gated knight, who like a foul and ugly witch doth limp so tediously away. The poor condemned English, like sacrifices by their watchful fires, sit patiently and inly ruminate the morning's danger. And their gesture sad, investing lank lean cheeks and war-worn coat, investing lank lean cheeks and war-worn co coats, presented them unto the gazing moon, so many horrid ghosts. Oh, now, who will behold the royal captain of this ruined band, walking from, the wa walking from watch to watch, from tent to tent? Let him cry praise and glory on his head. For forth he goes and visits all his host, bids them good morrow with a modest smile, and calls them brothers, friends, and countrymen. Upon his royal face there is no note how dread an army hath enrounded him, nor doth he dedicate one jot of color unto the weary and all-watched night, but freshly looks and overbears a taint, with cheerful semblance and sweet majesty that every watch, wretch, pining and pale before beholding him, plucks comfort from his looks. A largest universal like the sun, his liberal eye doth give to everyone, thawing cold fear that mean and gentle all behold, as may unworthiness define, a little touch of hairy in the night. 
And so our scene must to the battle fly, where, oh, for pity, we shall much disgrace with four or five most vile and ragged foils, right ill-disposed and brawl ridiculous, the name of Agincourt. Yet sit and see, minding true things by what their mockeries be. Lovely hitting that antithesis there at the end is bravo. Um, Wow. So this, I think, might be my favorite chorus speech. Um, Yeah, I I had a lot of... uh, things that that occurred to me as you were speaking it that I that I wrote down but I love to just start with what what are your sort of thoughts and impressions of of this speech and how it differs from say the act three one which is a little bit more triumphant triumphant excuse me yeah definitely um this one's more of a mouthful (laughs) not that you could see that in my performance or anything um but (laughs) definitely like harder to get your mouth around just in general Mm. there because there's we talked last time about how much um you know alliteration there was but that's nothing compared to this one the amount of s's and p's that are just all on top of each other and and this like uh, there's just it's just very repetitive in that way and it instead of feeling like it's going it's pushing us forward like the other one did it feels like the beat the the rhythm is now kind of just going like here we go here we go you know (laughs) in that kind of wave as opposed to a wave that's moving forward um also just two things that jumped out at me this time I've like I've heard this speech a lot before. I've read it a few times out loud, obviously, but when I was doing it for this specifically, two things that really jumped out at me was first that um, that imagery of the armorers getting ready, because I, I that's uh, we think about putting on armor a lot in Shakespeare's plays, but I don't think we we often talk about the armorers. Like we have, you know in Mackers, just putting on armor, taking it off again, putting on the armor, (laughs) all of that. But we don't ever like talk about like the, how you have to like hammer it and stuff like that. So I found that that just kind of jumped out to me as like a violence within preparation almost. Um, Mm. And then also, I mean, this one has jumped out to me before, but just the largest universal, like the sun, just reflecting that speech from the first time we ever saw Hal in Henry the Fourth Part One is we must be related. I totally just wrote that down too. (laughs) Oh wait, we are. (laughs) Well, we are. (laughs) Um, Just as that's the first, the first time we ever hear Hal talk about himself, really, because that's yeah, that's his first scene on stage, and after Poins and Falstaff leave, that's his the first thing he says to the audience about himself about like the sun behind the cloud. So it's it's really cool to see it reflected here, I think. Absolutely. And and there's such a he was, I think the the interesting comparison, right, is that in that at the beginning of Henry the Fourth Part One, he com- he's going to imitate the sun, but now the sun is imitating him, you know, which is kind of an extraordinary um turn, as it were. Yeah, I also wrote down alliteration and and specifically consonants, which is um for our for our listeners, consonants is where you have a repeated um, consonant sound over and over again. Like country cocks do crow, clocks do toll. You get both the the k the k c sound and the and the l sound, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Well, and the sun, uh, the sun image continues on in Richard three too. Isn't that how mm. Richard three opens? Yeah, is... the son of York. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Absolutely. What, well, and, what, and it also connects was, was back right to before Richard five? II. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Was four written right before five? Like, did he write them at the same? Yes. Around about the same yes. time. He probably wrote. According, to, I mean, nobody knows for sure, but according to most scholarship, um, Henry V was written around 1599, um, and Henry IV Part Two was probably 1597, 98, and Henry IV Part One was 96, 97. So there's there, I think they were written in pretty rapid succession, and they have a lot of resonances. And even before that, Richard II, who of course is the son, right? Who who right. we also connect Richard II to. Henry V a lot right. yeah there's a lot of you uh hit one string here and you feel the resonance way over there really the man cool. was busy or <laughs> the, man the woman was... <laughs> or the alien or whoever it is indeed indeed and the the repeated words is too that was that was something else fire answers fire steed threatened steed camp to camp like there just seems there's a lot of sort of uh balancing of these two armies although their odds are very unbalanced of course um i was wondering what you kind of thought that the attitude was and i guess it sort of changes but what the attitude is of the chorus towards this night um i think yeah. there's obviously a lot of sympathy for the english here but mm. there and although the army is not confident the chorus knowing more I think is like oh this was a terrible night but you know what there might be something coming up <laughs> um and I also think that this this little nagging part of the own of the play at the end here is different from the other ones in that it's like instead of being like oh it's a stage I'm sorry instead yeah. it's like well, it was just this huge, it feels more like there's no way you can imagine this battle as opposed, like like we could yeah. present this battle, right? Cause it's classic as opposed to just being like, oh, we can't do it. You know, yeah. <laughs> it feels much like- Less much, whiny. <laughs> yeah, it feels less whiny about it. It feels more like it's just, there's no way. So we're gonna, it's gonna be a little pitiful but you just have to imagine how crazy this battle was. Which mm. I think it's always funny when they do this speech, like, when they do this speech in um the Kenneth Branagh version and it's just like no I don't I can see it <laughs> like it's just like you've shown me um <laughs> like you're literally in the trenches there but, yeah uh, eh, I do find that funny it, like it's obviously a beautiful speech so you don't want to cut it but it, it is funny whenever they keep all the nagging in when it's a movie and you're like and when I, you're like actually you had a huge budget and yeah. that was an amazing <laughs> battle scene you just felt you, you yeah, definitely totally. had more than six or seven swords I can yeah tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you've got an entire special effects department to help you out yeah exactly absolutely um I, I totally agree. And it's it's actually, it's funny. I was trying to track what the numbers are. It's, it seems pretty clear that the French have 30,000, right? But it's unclear to me whether the English have 12,000 or 5,000. It's because both numbers kind of appear here throughout. Either way, they're, they're very, that's, they've, they've got a lot of them. But yeah, and were there, did anyone ha else have any other thoughts about this first uh, act four prologue? 
It feels kind of like I get the image of like fog slowly rolling through a camp. Mm. Like I feel like the the chorus in this one is like really obviously really going into like the lyrical nature of everything with the consonants. So I kind of feel like the audience is like a spider's prey. So they're just like really like loving like building it up and like being like oh what's gonna happen and like dangling us before them and like because we know a huge battle's gonna happen we know like casualties and like stuff so it just feels very like ominous but like um but like everyone else is saying not all is lost you know it's just very yeah like a a march going forward oh it reminds uh it reminds me a little bit and this is one of the least intelligent things probably to be said here, but here we go, of uh, some of those pre-battle scenes in Game of Thrones, you know? Like they always have that episode where they're all just chilling around the fire and they're like, well, we're probably going to die. Okay. (laughs) No, that's totally legit. Absolutely. Well, and also, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Alexander, please, please. Oh, I was just going to say, for some reason, I keep thinking about World War One. Mm. And the story I remember hearing about like on Christmas Eve, like they were each party was like singing in the trenches and they started singing to each other. But it, yeah, yeah, it's definitely that that palpable sense of like the quiet before the storm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And just to note that, you know, George R. R. Martin was incredibly inspired by the history plays. In fact, he basically just borrowed the plots of the history plays and then add, I mean, basically is that's very harsh. He took the plots and made them his own um, and, 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 you know, added a lot of magic and dragons, etc. But there, there, the resonance with the, with the war of the roses is, and the, and this previous section is, is I think very palpable for sure yeah there and there is that one ooh, that one battle which was so brutal the the battle of the bastards which i thought was like one of their best episodes that they did but just that giving you a sense of like how horrific a medieval battle could be <laughs> and that people like you know it, it, to me what was so great about that and then I, I promise we'll come away from game of thrones but what was so great about that battle was it gave me context for that once more, like fill the wall up with our english dead like that that actually bodies uh dead bodies in these battles could become both an obstacle and also a tool if you knew how to use them properly which is like really kind of disturbing to think about but it's actually what happened at the battle of agincourt was the the French came down and the fields had just been plowed. They were, you know, this happened over a sort of like plowed field and it had just rained. And so everything, like they were stuck in the mud and they just couldn't move. And the English were able to just mow them down. And the, the archers that they had were highly, highly trained archers. They had this small little cadre of, cadre of archers that just like just flatten them i mean thousands thousands of french died in agincourt but we don't know that yet so uh spoilers sorry um anyway but yeah i i i agree with you is that the 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 negative part of like oh we're not very great is 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 different this time there there seems to be some sort of awe around like the actual battle of Agincourt itself is like put into these mythic proportions. Wonderful. Well, uh, let's 
dive right into 4-1, which I do believe is the longest scene in the play. No, it's not. Never mind. No, it's not. The last scene is the longest scene in the play. It's very, very close to the longest scene in the play. So my proposal is that we start reading and we go through the Fluellen and Gower um, interaction and then just sort of take a little break and then do the Henry with uh, Bates, Court, and Williams and take a little breather and then do the the speech to the end because it's, it's there's just a lot of interactions to go through well wonderful so uh andrew whenever you're ready gloucester it is true that we are in great danger the greater therefore should our courage be good morrow brother bedford god almighty there is some soul of goodness in things evil would men observingly distill it out for our bad neighbor makes us early stirs, which is both healthful and good husbandry. Besides, they are our outward consciences and preachers to us all admonishing that we should dress us fairly for our end. Thus may we gather honey from the weed and make a moral of the devil himself. Good morrow, old Sir Thomas Erpingham. The good soft pillow for that good white head were better than a churlish turf of France. Not so, my liege. This lodging likes me better, since I may say, now lie I like a king. <laughs> Tis good for men to love their present pains. Upon example so the spirit is eased, and when the mind is quickened, out of doubt the organs, though defunct and dead before, break up their drowsy grave and newly move with casted slough and fresh legerity. Lend me thy cloak, Sir Thomas. Brothers both, commend me to the princes in our camp. Do my good morrow to them, and anon desire them all to my pavilion. You shall, my liege. Shall I attend your grace? No, my good knight. Go with my brothers to my lords of England. I and my bosom must debate a while, and then I would know other company. The Lord in heaven bless thee, noble Harry. God a mercy, old heart. Thou speak'st cheerfully. Chevula. A friend. Discuss unto me. Art thou officer, or art thou base, common, and popular? I am a gentleman of a company. Tra trailest thou the puissant pike? Even so, what are you? As good a gentleman as the emperor. Then you are better than a king. The king's a bawcock and a heart of gold, a lad of life, an imp of fame, of parents good, of fist most valiant. I kiss his dirty shoe, and from heartstring I love the lovely bully. What is thy name? <coughs> Harry Leroy. Leroy, a Cornish name. Art thou of Cornish crew? No, I am a Welshman. Knowest thou Fluellen? Yes. Tell him I'll knock his leak about his pate upon St. Davy's Day. Do not you wear your dagger in your cap that day, lest he knock that about yours. Art thou his friend? And his kinsman, too. The fico for thee, then. I thank you. God be with you. My name is Pistol Called. It sorts well with your fierceness. Captain Fluellen. So in the name of Jesus Christ, speak fewer. It is the greatest admiration of the in the universal world when the true and ancient, mm, prerogatives? 
I think he's trying to say prerogatives, but I think okay, it's cool. like written in as the accent. So however you would like to say it, my dear. <laughs> Great. We'll go with prerogatives. <laughs> uh, prerogatives and laws of the wars is not kept. If you would take the pains but to examine the wars of Pompey the Great, you shall find, I warn you, that there is no tittle-tattle nor pibble-battle in Pompey's camp. I warrant you, you shall find the ceremonies of the wars and the cares of it and the forms of it and the sobriety of it and the modesty of it to be otherwise. Why, the enemy is loud. You hear him all night. If the enemy is an ass and a fool and a prating coxcomb, is it meet, think you, that we should also look you be an ass and a fool and a prating coxcomb? In your own conscience now? I will speak lower. I pray you and beseech you that you will. Though it appear a little out of fashion, there is much care and valor in this Welshman. Let's just pause there very briefly and just go over these, these little sections. So we, we start off with um, Henry with his, with his two brothers, his two uh, youngest brothers, Gloucester, uh, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and um, John of Bedford, who, for those of you who know Henry IV Part One, it's Prince John of Lancaster. Um, so these are his two youngest brothers. There's no explanation as to why his, according to his father, his favorite brother isn't here, because um, he had three younger brothers, um, an heir, a spare, and two more spares. Um, but they're all here. So I, I, I kind of like this, that, they're, that he's with his actual brothers, and then he sort of moves through the rest of the army and sort of tries to become brothers with them all. And then we have Sir Thomas Erpingham, who is this knight who everyone seems to adore. Um, and the repetition of the word good in this first section was something that just um, stood out to me. But I would love to hear from from all of you, what what about in, uh, up until sort of Pistol um, enters, were, were there any observations about this little section? I think it'd be really hard to have a brother that's the king. <laughs> I don't know. That's just, I was like, man, he gets it all just because he was born first. <laughs> and I have to go like do his bidding. You know, he's like, go tell them I'm coming. And I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> no wonder they were killing each other over the uh, <laughs> Well, and in fact, he says, uh, Henry V says when he becomes Henry V, like, brothers, you look, afraid <laughs> this is the english not the turkish court um because at the same time there was a, a turkish prince who when he came to the throne uh slaughtered all of his brothers um which is sort of ensure that there were no uprisings and then uh his successor did the same with his brothers so uh there is there is not Fun. a uh, very very long long and glorious history of <clears throat> royal families having some issues for sure <laughs> Andrew, what do you think is, is going on with these two Henry speeches? What do you think he's trying to do? Uh, yeah, it was interesting reading this through um, earlier, and I was focusing more on the on where he goes to in this scene. Mm. Um, and I don't know. So th that made me a little confused about where he's at, because these are, um, on the face of them, they seem positive. It, uh, I was reading these as trying to encourage those around him uh, mm -hmm. with um, kind of moral um, guidance. But 
again, I wonder if it's more about him and um, yeah. his state of mind. I, I mean, it's both. Uh, obviously, we're all pretty down in the dumps and in the middle of this dark, dark night before a very frightening day. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't really know how how the transition from here at the top of the scene and this almost jocular uh, joking about the um, the situation leads into the the doubt that is to come. Absolutely. Well, and I, I, I do like the idea that you're, you're already starting off with a, um, a sense, as we've just heard from the chorus, you know, he's, he's not showing anyone that he, what his thoughts are, um, even those right. closest to him seemingly. Um, and, and if I, I do like that, that this is, is, is for both words of encouragement for his, the people surrounding him and also for himself, which I think can um, connect very interestingly when we get to his sort of debate about whose fault is it <laughs> um, if soldiers die in battle, essentially, um, that there is, it's a very complex relationship, I think, that he has with um, responsibility for all these people being here in this moment and not knowing what's happening. It is this weird thing of like, you see that the way that they, like everybody's suddenly, I mean, I know it is his brothers, but like the informality with which people start to speak to him, like in the midst mm. of battle is really interesting. And then like combined with that, which is that like he bears more and more and more responsibility as he, as the sort of like uh, that, that barrier is sort of broken through yeah absolutely and then it's sort of i i feel like it's going to reach a pitch with that like the this sort of climax of this sort of like almost despair of like what the fuck like <laughs> to yeah. me it almost goes like a little bit nihilistic at the end of this scene yeah. you know I'm you just sort of like and, and like as we've sort of talked about with like the journey from henry four it feels like if someone were to call him Hal, he would just like absolutely break down, you know? Like it feels like, I, I don't know if it's just me, but like, I feel like I see the ghost of Falstaff like in every person that he's like sort of relating to. And I mean, like it says in the, so many horrid ghosts in the prologue, you know? Like it does sort of feel like he's already haunted. Like he's already haunted by the deaths of all these people, like as he's, you know watching them go about the night before but also the ghosts of it, it it just feels like his whole past is sort of like coming into like one horrible That's awesome <laughs> yeah. that is so cool i love and that and that it's a little touch of harry in the night not henry and uh yep. and he introduces himself to pistol as harry again hearkening back to earlier days perhaps yeah can we talk a little bit i'm because i've been curious about those this that distinction as well you know the like the french king for instance always called him harry is is it just is it just they're interchangeable or is there something to those distinctions throughout the play i don't know what's interesting to me is that he goes from being hal he's prince hal and then he gets called hal and harry in part two and okay. then and then he's called henry and harry in in 
Henry V. I mean, it feels like for the French and like anybody feel free to correct me on this. To me, just like, it, it feels like a kind of insult of like referring to somebody informally in yeah. such a way, you know, instead of being like the opposing king, he's like, oh, that guy Harry over there, you know, yeah. in the kind of way that I don't know if any, you know, sometimes when like you're you're sort of talking about your parents to your friends and you use their first name just to sort of like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's just me. Um, <laughs> like a, not just sort of sort of like acknowledging them as as uh, not an authority figure, but as mm. an individual, it kind of like takes the power away from him a little bit. And also perhaps. conversely, it's a way of creating intimacy for the people around him, Harry, the King, you know, I'm very close to him. So I can say that, you know, yeah, it's sort of like sense. thou that the right. use of yeah, thou versus yeah. That's what you, I was thinking about. Exactly. Yeah. Like that a, it can be used as an insult, but also as a term of intimacy as well. Um, yeah. Who is it? Yeah. In Julius Caesar. Is it Caesar's wife that she starts swapping those in a speech to him? And it's like, just says a lot about her, her mindset. Oh yeah, I love tracking the thou you <laughs> yeah. thing. There's so many different um, sort of permutations and also exceptions and irregularities to any rules that you try and create, um, which which to me is like always very fun. But I love, I, I really love that Julia about the ghosts of his past are also visiting him with each one of these interactions. I mean, yeah, um, you think like he sees, you know, I'm well, you know, Bardolph and and all those they're there you know yeah and it, it feels weird like the sort of the ways that he interacts with them you know and like they don't quite acknowledge you know it's 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 weird yeah it's it's very interesting absolutely and this first interaction so he he disguised i love the conceit in shakespeare that like if you put on a cloak no one knows who you are like it's just great it's so convenient um having played the duke in measure for measure last summer or two summers ago or whenever it was it's like look i put a hood up and i no one knows who i am hooray um it's it's pretty cool um, it's more believable than just putting glasses on like clark kent there you go. Um, but so, you know, that's that's how that's how strong of a cultural reference it is. I also also yeah. thinking of that this isn't this kind of like the prototypical like leader disguised. You don't know you're talking to the king or president or whoever. Like I can't think of a more famous undercover bosses. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I've never seen that show. I just know the title of it, but it seems like kind of that's what's happening here. It's a little bit like I want to get to know how these people are doing um, before we all die. Also, um, yeah, to me, it seems kind of bold uh, as a play to th this this constant going back of uh, portraying. Uh, Henry V as a person and how when he's hooded and he has all these interactions with the people um, for as much uh, as a king is a leader and, and for all that he accomplished and everything um, I think throughout these different scenes putting him in, in these different uh, scenarios um, kind of I appreciate that that light that is put on him as as this person and how he grew up uh, 
and how he grew into that position. And, and later on at the end, I'm, I'm struck, if I jump to the last scenes and things, he, he's always speaking as a soldier, as, a, as I am a soldier. And yeah. I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'm curious as to what we, we speak about when we mention that, but kind of his change, be, be his, his transformations and, and yeah, how, how suddenly this identity of, of soldier and king and, and friend and names uh, is, is kind of a, a bold and interesting choice for me. Yeah, it feels like he's seeking, he's seeking that answer himself, you know, like he, how, how often do you see the sort of the leader of the, the battle, you know, the king, yeah. like going in and like wanting to be more connected with the people who are about to die for him? Like, that seems pretty crazy. But then, I mean, I'm, I was just scrolling through and I stopped upon like Pistol's line art thou officer or art thou base common and popular and it's like well he's both of those things like we've seen him as Hal and he is you know and then he says I'm a gentleman which is such a like weird answer to that question and no it's he's he doesn't know himself he he doesn't of a company too yeah I love it's like yeah yeah it's it's like a company has such a connotation of like he's he wants to be a part of this group but yeah. he feels like such an other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this will lead to that upon the king. Um, it's like a fascinating look at um, when you become subsumed by your job or your role in society, yeah. do you have a self anymore? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think not, not to just like bring this back to my character, but it's also like, it's, I, 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 as I've said, have, I'm struggling so much with like what even Flewellen is, but just like in terms of the purpose that he serves here, I mean, he says that he is uh, like, you know, it's Harry of Monmouth, like he was born in Wales. And so the weird sort of like em- embracing that he has of like Flewellen and the, the, the conversation that they'll have later where he's sort of, that he's like, you're my brother, you're my kin, like that whole thing. Yeah. There is this, like, you see, he, he like, he so much wants to be a part of something. And so the way that yeah. he sort of embraces the fact that he was born in Wales and was the Prince of Wales, you know, he like, he really like, he, it seems like a strange place in the middle of a battle in France to be like, really clinging to like, the your birthplace in this yeah. way, but he, he very much does, where he's like, and his, you know, he says, art thou his friend and his kinsman too, you know, he's, he's, I feel like I'm talking too much about other no, people. No, no. But I, I just find it it's so, so sad and pathetic. And like, he, he just wants to be on the same level with somebody. He wants to like, feel like he's part of any sort of collective. He's, he's seeking a, yeah. a, a family, a group, a collective. He needs a gang. He does. He needs a squad. <laughs> yeah, he needs a squad. Well, I would love to, yeah, talk about both the um, Henry and, and Pistol. We never actually saw them together on stage in Henry the Fourth Part Two, um, but Pistol was certainly hanging out with Falstaff and Bardolph. And so I, I, that is always a question here. D- does he, is, is Henry more nervous because like Pistol knows him more than most of these soldiers? Uh, would know him 
but yeah, this it, it's it's a funny interaction. Also, when did Pista learn to speak French? Like, like when did that happen? <laughs> when did he become Mark Antony? When did he learn to speak French? Like, <laughs> when did any of this happen? <laughs> it's interesting that he uh, uh, that he speaks French there, and and I wonder where are they? Has Henry moved mm. in in an instant? Uh, in our imagination since he uh, took the cloak from Erpingham that he's so close to the, the edge of the lines that Pistol could imagine him a, a, a spy. Um, yeah. Because he wouldn't greet someone in French unless he thought there was a good chance they might be French. Yeah. yeah. yeah I feel unless like he's just trying out his French. <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like that's what it has to be. I feel like they're sort of on the edge now. It's like a little scooching over, a little pan over, like a cinematic pan over to the edge of the camp. Yeah, and it is like, it's either something that like the people of the watch have been instructed to speak in French to like catch out, you know, possible spies or something. I like that interpretation a lot. I think that makes sense. Well, and also it, it also gives like real moments of tension into this scene, like both here when it's like, who the fuck are you? Uh, and also then it, in the part we're about to read where they don't r see him and then all of a sudden who goes there you know like anytime I think those moments it's always like a pet peeve of mine in Shakespeare when like those moments have absolutely no stakes or tension and I'm like you guys are on the eve of battle <sighs> like get revved up you know um, but I, I yeah I, I was yeah. just thinking <laughs> about the echoes of I just keep thinking about the echoes of Hamlet, not the echoes, but the beginnings of Hamlet in this. I mean, that's very act one, act one scene one of Hamlet, you know? And, you hey, know, they were written the same year. Exactly. Like, and and I've been thinking a lot. I Like, I really feel like right now that some of Henry's language approaches the complexity and magnificence of Hamlet's. And so it just makes total sense to me that, you know, he was on fire <laughs> he was writing these, you know? <laughs> I mean, not to say that the other ones aren't good, but there's, there is a, just a, just really a brilliance to these, these speeches that I think are some of the shiniest of them all. Yeah, I think you, a, yeah, Andrew, go uh, ahead, please. I was just going to say, thinking about Hamlet reminds me, um, and this ties in with the cloak and the ridiculousness of that disguise, um, that a part of those stakes that you mentioned, Ariana, are due to it being so dark. It, it's dark in a way that we who live our lives under electric lights cannot understand yeah. uh, unless we go camping or, or something, <laughs> uh, wander around the, the, the landscape in the dark. But the cloak is part of the disguise, but also his location, wherever he is amongst the people, uh, is a disguise in this sort of darkness that if any light they're carrying around uh, torches um, or brands or candles or something. And um, so that, you know, that who's there at the beginning of Hamlet, um, in order for there to be stakes there, you have to realize the, the darkness that those guys are living in yeah. as they're uh, wondering whether there are ghosts sneaking up on them. 
That's so a good in this point, case, Andrew. it's not ghosts; it's it's French people. So. <laughs> Same, Same difference. <laughs> They're about to be ghosts. Heyo! Oh, oh, spoilers! <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I love that Pistol gets a a callback to his sort of well, fuck you moments from Henry the Fourth Part Two, <laughs> Biko for the even, which was usually accompanied by a very rude gesture of some sort. But yeah, it's like it's. I, there's something really um, because why is he upset right it's because right. Llewellyn didn't intervene and and, Bartolf, and his friend is dead yeah. and there's there's something actually kind of very sweet to me about how this doesn't seem like the pistol that we see in most scenes there's and this probably would have just happened so there's something he just seems more grounded than normal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really like his little. Oh, I'm. Am I frozen? Oh, okay. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Everyone else was frozen for me for a second. So, <laughs> yeah, I really like his little character arc. I feel like you get it a bit. You get it when he's talking to Fluellen on Bardolf's behalf when he's asking him to, you know, ask the king. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't like hold a grudge against the king at all for that in this scene when Henry's disguised and he could be like oh that fucking guy like we used to be friends but he killed you know like he's seen Henry just like kill off some of their good friends so it's interesting that he's still like he's a good guy heart of gold like I kiss his dirty shoe I I I wanted to bring that up because I just realized uh Zoe and I were in a podcast of Henry IV last year hmm. and uh, I was quickly and I just realized I've been trying to place it quickly has the line where she says I think about Hal a good heart's worth gold and like yeah, it's so interesting yeah. that Pit, like Pistol's married to her and he like his description of Hal is like so it, it feels so much like you know he's borrowing some of Quickly's language about Hal, you know? And you sort of, yeah, I just, I, that's, I remember that in the second. I was like, oh my God, Pistol! I love that! <laughs> I totally love that. That's like, really yeah. awesome. It's this, that. like, beautiful poetic moment of, like, you know, on, on like we've all said, on the doorstep of death in the morning and who's leading you there, but this this king who you you know perhaps you like doesn't have a relationship with him as as we said earlier but like he oh god he like he knows of him and his wife has said has told him all these stories about this person yeah. and like that's so weird and complicated and of course he doesn't know that this is the man but that's so weird and complicated of like it also like it also must make him feel like weirdly close and loyal to henry you know yeah. mm-hmm. Like he's been told, you know, it makes him feel close to his wife. It like th- these stories also humanize this kind of like mythic figure in a way that like, I feel like in, in moments of war, it's like seeking that, like we've said, like seeking these connections and like seeing this person who like doesn't, maybe doesn't really have a connection with the king, but like feels like he does because of these like humanizing stories that he's been told by his loved ones. Like that's so what like that's so much in like, <laughs> tiny little lines yeah absolutely well it's also like one of the last remaining i mean you know i feel like 
Henry four through Henry five is just this crew being slowly like picked off one by one. Like they're all just sort of dropping off as we lose the comedy and get into like war, war times. And, you know, you lose Falstaff, who's like the heart of the trilogy, basically. And then you lose Bardolph, who's sort of like Falstaff's represent, like a, a poor man's Falstaff, <laughs> like all that's left, really. And it's, yeah, it's sort of interesting how, I feel like it's also showing, I mean, we'll get later to the other people that Henry talks to in this scene, but um, I feel like it does show people sort of trying to band together in their nerves and their fear and their, you know, sort of forgiving old gripes and like putting that stuff to rest and, you know, knowing that they have to fight together soon as brothers, as Henry's going around saying, you know, we're all brothers and stuff like that. So it is sort of forgetting all of these like small grudges and things um, for people who know him, for like people who are closer to him. Yeah. And then, and then we have this, I, I love this, this little moment that Henry has alone where he says it sorts well with your fierceness about pistol. I don't know why, but that just, that line just makes me smile. Um, and to me, it, it almost, it sounds so uh, almost nostalgic that it's like, they must, that he must be thinking about some memory of like pistol in the tavern, getting totally drunk and yelling about fell electo's snake or whatever, you know, and like naming off as many Greek mythological figures as possible. Um, but then we have a, we have a different, right. We have, we just, the scene is just like so many little vignettes, right? So our next vignette is with Gower and Fluellen, who we met in act three, our English captain and our Welsh captain. Um, and again, here's someone else who's going to take us not to the Greek gods, but to the history of warfare in Rome, right. And his obsession with Pompey the Great and et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, tell us, <laughs> ladies, tell us about this little moment. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> you know, I just, I'm like, really, <laughs> I'm fascinated by um, Shakespeare's pre-battle scenes. Mm. Uh, thinking about, I mean, they were much briefer, it felt like, in Henry IV, or at least we were just, you know, playing them like that, yeah. uh, Henry IV Part One. But that scene, like, for instance, with the rebels leading into the battle, it's really, it's not this drawn out. You still get some of this sense of character and you kind of, you know, you've got the Douglas and Hotspur who are Esperanza and ready to go and Vernon, of course, not so much. Um, but also this scene in particular, I keep thinking a lot about, and it's also act four of Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, and this is very similar, I guess this is the most similar to the act four pre-battle scene in that one, in that we do have this goofy comedy kind of, like there's still very much this, okay, yeah, we can hear them, they're coming, we're all screwed, but it's very goofy and light. And I just really appreciate how this act four uh, stays more grounded in reality, for one, other than that one, but also just the mastery of the different emotions and the way they shift from the very, I love what you were saying about um, Hal, Harry, Henry's ghost, Julia. Like that just mm -hmm. <laughs> killed me. <laughs> it's so sad. Absolutely. I'm one of them now too. <laughs> <laughs> but then we do get this 
it's just the mastery of the emotional beats and then you get the comedic relief so that you're not completely just depressed and worn down by all of it i just i love how artful this is struck artfully this is structured i think also like i i mean and i'm just sort of like as I said yesterday, I'm just trying to figure out what the fuck's going on with Blue Island. <laughs> um, but just because, like, I, I have to find, especially, like I said, with these characters that, like, are such caricatures, it's so important for me to, like, as, you know, as an actor, it's important for us to, like, find the humanizing aspect so you're, so you're not just sort of sitting there being, like, I'm playing an asshole, <laughs> you know? Um, but, like, I feel like with this and sort of, like, with the way that Henry responds it's like okay so here we are like everyone's so depressed like everyone's so exhausted and scared and then there's this person who like he he with all the things that they've seen and like we've said about like the cannons and like the mines and like the true like horrifying and like catastrophic misery of death in in like in these battles and in war like to have this character who who is so he's unstoppable in his view of like the dignity and the the like the art of it and the beauty of it and like he continues to in the face of all that like continues to want to talk about war as like an art form and is is connecting it to this history in in a way like in the midst of it and also yeah. is is you know, everybody's sitting around just kind of like trying to get through the night. And he's sort of like, we, we've got to remember to be quiet because otherwise we'll, we'll lose, you know, we don't want to do, we don't want to fuck it up for ourselves. And like, just because the enemy is doing it doesn't mean that we should do, you know, he, he's so undeterred and like, he is like one of, one of the guys because he's such a weirdo, (laughs) but also, his kind of unceasing unquenchable desire for dignity in the midst of all this is like kind of weirdly I feel like empowering Mm. it's like you know the the king isn't able to be like yeah we can all do it like he he had his once more into the breach and then kind of like all the blood drained out of his body and yet there's (laughs) people like Flewellen who are just sort of like like still at it like going like we've got to make sure that we're like really quiet and like don't let your fire get too big because we don't want them to know who they are like while everyone else is like can't figure out why any of it matters you know he he doesn't have time to be thinking philosophical questions about his mortality he's he's so entrenched in the glory and the art of it which is almost admirable i'm gonna say but it's also funny to me because he talks the most (laughs) yeah so it's like there's no time for this tittle tattle pribble prabble blah blah (laughs) words to describe the same thing yeah i like i imagine a contemporary production where he's just got a megaphone and he's just like (laughs) he's like shouting through it like everybody be quiet (laughs) (laughs) i love that idea oh my gosh but, but also I, I also, way, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Zoe. Please go ahead. I was, I was going to swerve a little. I just love the way he's always talking about like Roman warfare, <laughs> but also the way he brings up ceremonies here, like ceremonies of war, because it's, we haven't gotten to it yet, but the upon the king speech, the sort that sort of 
that speech sort of rotates on the idea that the only thing that separates Henry is like ceremony. Like that's all a king has that makes him different from like common people. So I think it's interesting that we're already like bringing it up. It's like a little, a little peek into what's to come of like the, yeah, like the art of war, the ceremony, the, and then that in contrast with like the reality of what war is, which I feel like we talk about a lot because it just comes up a lot in this play. But I like that Flewellen like brings it up and that he's so interested in like the idea of like how war is supposed to be. Anyway, it's just interesting. Absolutely. That, thank you for, for mentioning that because I think there's, there's a lot of repeated words that find themselves and ceremony is going to be a very repeated word, but this is definitely the first time we hear it in this scene, which is wonderful. Um, and I just love like Henry's, his sort of analysis of Flewellen's sort of eccentricities of like, he might not conform to sort of normal <laughs> captainly behavior, but there's a lot of care and valor in him. You know, there, there's, there's, he's a good soldier. Um, for all of his quirks which is again it's just like another thing each each one of these little moments alone before the next person comes in uh is 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 sort of seems to me like he needed to reach a conclusion from each of these interactions before he gets to the battle the next day somehow I don't I don't quite know why that is yeah shall we shall we jump into the the Bates court Williams section um this so we've been switching a lot between verse and prose and we were just we we were in prose we get this two lines in verse and now we're going to switch back to uh prose for quite a while and um I'm actually gonna make a a change to what I have in the script here which is that on page 70 where it says exit soldiers. I don't think that they exit. I was looking at the folio and I don't think they exit until the very end of that page because it stays in prose and then it changes to verse. Um, so yeah, that was my only, not that because we're doing this <laughs> with no entrances and exits, <laughs> it's not that important, but it's important to me to think about like who's on stage at this point. So let's go jump right in uh, on page uh, 66 with, uh, court. I like that each of them has a full name too. That's kind of fun. Yeah, I'm just happy to know that there's a Shakespeare character that shares my name. I never knew that. I just learned that. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Brother John Bates, it's not that the morning which breaks yonder. I think it be, but we have no great cause to desire the approach of day. We see yonder the beginning of the day, but I think we shall never see the end of it. Who goes there? A friend. Under what captain serve you? Under Sir Thomas Erbingham. A good old commander and a most kind gentleman. I pray you, what thinks he of our estate? Even as men wrecked upon a sand that looked to be washed off the next tide. He hath not told his thought to the king? No, nor it is not meet he should. For though I speak it to you, I think the king is but a man as I am. The violet smells to him as it doth to me. The element shows to him as it doth to me. All his senses have but human conditions. The ceremonies laid by in his nakedness, he appears but a man. And though his affections are higher mounted than ours, yet when they stoop, they stoop with the like wing. Therefore, when he sees reason of fears as we do, 
His fears out of doubt be of the same relish as ours are. Yet in reason no man should possess him with any appearance of fear, lest he by showing it should dishearten his army. He may show what outward courage he will, but I believe, as cold a knife as tis, he could wish himself of Thames up to the neck. And so I would he were, and I by him at all adventures, so we were quit here. By my troth, I will speak my conscience of the king. I think he would not wish himself anywhere but where he is. Then I would he were here alone. So should he be sure to be ransomed and many a poor man's lives saved. I dare say you love him not so ill to wish him here alone. Howsoever you speak this to feel other men's minds, methinks I could not die anywhere so contented as in the king's company, his cause being just and his quarrel honorable. That's more than we know. I are more than we should seek after. For we know enough if we know we are the king's subjects. If his cause be wrong, our obedience to the king wipes the crime of it out of us. But if the cause be not good, the king himself hath a heavy reckoning to make when all those legs and arms and heads chopped off in a battle shall join together at the latter day and cry all, we died at such a place, some swearing, some crying for a surgeon, some upon their wives left poor behind them, some upon the debts they owe, some upon their children Raleigh left. I am afeard there are few die well that die in a battle. For how can they charitably dispose of anything when blood is their argument? Now, if these men do not die well, it will be a black matter for the king that led them to it, who to disobey were against all proportion of subjection. So if a son that is by his father sent about merchandise to sinfully miscarry upon the sea, the imputation of his wickedness by your rule should be imposed upon his father that sent him. Or if a servant under his master's command, transporting a sum of money, be assailed by robbers and die in many irreconciled iniquities, you may call the business of the master the author of the servant's damnation. But this is not so. The king is not bound to answer the particular endings of his soldiers, the father of his son, nor the master of his servant, for they purpose not their death when they purpose their services. Besides, there is no king, be his cause never so spotless, if it come to the arbitrament of swords, can try it out with all unspotted soldiers. Some, peradventure, have on them the guilt of premeditated and contrived murder, some of beguiling virgins with the broken seals of perjury, some making the wars their bulwark, that have before gored the gentle bosom of peace with pillage and robbery. Now, if these men have defeated the law and outrun native punishment, though they cannot outstrip men, they have no wings to fly from God. War is his beetle. War is his vengeance. So that here men are punished for before breach of the king's laws in now the king's quarrel. Where they feared the death, they have borne life away. And where they would be safe, they perish. Then if they die unprovided, no more is the king guilty of their damnation than he was before guilty of their impieties, for the which they are now visited. Every subject's duty is the king's, but every subject's soul is his own. Therefore, should every soldier in the wars do as every sick man in his bed, wash every moat out of his conscience, and dying so, death is to him advantage. Or not dying, the time was blessedly lost, wherein such preparation was gained. 
and in him that escapes, it were not sin to think that making God so free an offer, he let him outlive that day to see his greatness and to teach others how they should prepare. Tis certain every man that dies ill, the ill upon his own head. The king is not to answer it. I do not desire he should answer for me, and yet I determined to fight lustily for him. I myself heard the king say he would not be ransomed. <laughs> Aye, he said so, to make us fight cheerfully. But when our throats are cut, he may be ransomed, and we are ne'er the wiser. I live to see it. I will never trust his word after. <laughs> you pay him then. That's a perilous shot out of an elder gun that a poor and a private displeasure can do against a monarch. You may as well go about to turn the sun to ice with fanning in his face with a peacock's feather. You'll never trust his word after. Come, tis a foolish saying. Your reproof is something too round. I should be angry with you if the time were convenient. Let it be a quarrel between us, if you live. I embrace it. How shall I know thee again? Give me any gauge of thine, and I will wear it in my bonnet. Then if ever thou darest acknowledge it, I will make it my quarrel. Here's my glove. Give me another of thine. There. This will I also wear in my cap. If ever thou come to me and say after tomorrow, this is my glove, by this hand I will take thee a box on the air. If, I, if ever I live to see it, I will challenge it. Thou darest as well be hanged. Well, I will do it, though I take thee in the king's company. Keep thy word. Fare thee well. Be friends, you English fools. Be friends. We have French quarrels enough, if you can tell how to reckon. Indeed. The French may lay twenty French crowns to one they will beat us, for they bear them on their shoulders. But it is no English treason to cut French crowns, and tomorrow the king himself will be a clipper. Let's just pause there briefly. Um, again, we get some more coin jokes there at the end. Um, always fun and very, very, very difficult to convey to the audience. Um, well, wonderful, you guys. That, that really clipped along, like beautifully read. Um, tell me about this section and these new, we have three brand new characters. These are three soldiers. They're obviously, I think, privates so I, or, or low-ranking uh, soldiers. I don't think these are, these are captains, right? And this is quite an interesting interaction about whose responsibility um, this is. Uh, yeah, I would just, I would love to hear your thoughts as, as you went through this. I just wonder how much, how much Henry, I guess, believes, like mm. all the things he's saying. And I guess it's kind of like what we're all talking about this entire play, because he puts up a front, as someone was saying earlier, I can't remember who, but like he puts up a front and, he, you know, and they even mentioned in the play that he has to be courageous for some and he can only show his cowardice for others. But really when he was talking in the speech about like how he can't really have any fault for the way people die because it's all up to the way people have lived. I was just like, really, Henry? Do you really believe that? <laughs> <laughs> or are you just trying to push off some of the guilt you have from just being king and leading people to their death. Like, I wonder how in this time of need, how much he actually believes in the goal right now. Absolutely. I and think like, that's a great question. Yeah. And who does he wish he could talk to right now? I wonder if he like wishes he could like talk to his father right now or someone, mm. you know, like who is he searching for? Who is he searching for? That's beautiful. I love that Nas. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, Andrew, do you have any response to that about that, that gargantuan prose speech that you just, (laughs) that you just worked through? Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. That's, uh, it's not an open and shut case of this is a, um, in good faith argument, trying to convince some, someone else of something that he holds to be true. Mm. It's one of those situations where, um, he's using his rhetoric and, and the interaction with someone else to try and convince himself. Um, if he, if he already knew it and believed it totally, then, I don't think there's any scene because we haven't come to the point where he's ready to address the audience about it. So we've got a ways to go. And, uh, and I, maybe these scenelets are little different tactics that he's using to try and convince himself and bring himself out of, out of the, uh, out of doubt. Absolutely. And I think there is something just as you were, as, but as both of you were, were talking about this, that reminded me of what the, Archbishop of Canterbury said about him in the first scene, which is that hear him, but reason in divinity and all admiring with an inward yeah. wish, you would desire the king were made a prelate, right? So he's, we know that he has these skills. He knows how to talk with great skill about divinity, about um, ecclesiastical things, but also then he goes on to say he also knows very well to talk about politics and commonwealth affairs and he's also a soldier so it it, to me it's like we're seeing this interesting side of him that we haven't really seen before of of the kind of preacher in this kind of interesting strange way um which we're gonna see i think in, in 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 much much more convincing detail when he switches to verse and he has we few we happy few speech you know that to me that argument is much more convincing i think if i were a soldier than than this one is and maybe that's because it's in verse and maybe that's because it's famous but yeah that i i don't know that that was sort of my my thought about that um yeah i did want to say about um again about this cloak right this is probably a stretch but um I do find it really interesting that when Henry needs to go back into and mingle with his people, he borrows a cloak as a disguise from an old knight um, to whom he seems to have this really close connection. Um, and I wonder, it makes me wonder what this scene would have been like if uh, Kemp hadn't left and Falstaff were still in the play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm you know, where, where is the Falstaff here? Is it Erpingham and Shakespeare brought in this other guy um, out of his, pulled this other guy out of history to, to stand in uh, mm. or because you can't really have this scene. Mm, Falstaff can't be there, even though that's pretty much his place. So uh, in the proto Henry V is Falstaff in some way elevated such that he can, um, that he takes the place of Erpingham and is mm. uh, hanging out with the lords in the tent while Henry's out in the night. <laughs> I don't know. That's great. So, it's kind of interesting that you say that because one of the things that I really like about this is this exchange with Henry and Williams. Mm-hmm. It There's almost a sense of playfulness to it. 
that to me kind of this could just be something I'm imposing on it but it kind of almost throws back to the tavern scene in Henry IV part one because even though Williams has no idea he's talking to Henry he's calling him out in the same way that Falstaff used to call him out and I think maybe because we're kind of talking about this sense of him trying to find somewhere that he belongs something to be a part of throughout this scene I think that this maybe is almost kind of where he's finding that Mm. That actually his his dialogue and his exchange is his way that sort of takes him back to his back to his roots, which all those tavern scenes are about arguments and about who said what better, you know, with usually Falstaff kind of winning. <laughs> yeah. Amy, did you did you have something else to add? <clears throat> just that, uh, you know, Williams, I got the feeling that he started out just like, well, you know, we're going to die tomorrow. But he he doesn't he doesn't suffer fools gladly and i i don't think he likes the rhetoric um and that makes him mad he gets mad at that point after henry's long speech it's like you got to be kidding me yeah i'll admit you know we die ill it's you know it's our own fault but but he's kind of like you know the king has nothing to lose he's going to be ransomed we're all going to be killed it's kind of this each of these little vignettes are different people's perspective on what's going to happen. And you start with the Royals who are kind of like, Oh, isn't Henry great. Um, And then you get to that. Then you get to the captains that are kind of thinking strategy or, you know, and then pistol is kind of like a middleman. He's kind of in between. These guys are the guys that are going to be in the mud. They're going to be on the front line that are going to get plowed into. And it's kind of, you know, to have somebody come into the camp and, and start going on and on. Williams is like, oh, come on, give me a break. Yeah. You know, and if and if I see you, I think Williams doesn't think he's going to see this guy again. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll change gloves with you if, if you live. Sure. Um, yeah. So I kind of got the perspective that this is kind of the every man. This is the guy that, you know, maybe has an acre of land and he's been called on to fight and he's left, you know, his wife and 10 kids, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, to have, to have this guy come into camp. I just couldn't, it's, it's, I think King Henry went over the top with the wrong people. I mean, the <laughs> rhetoric is kind of, it's, it's almost like, why are you talking like this guy? Mm. I, I don't know. I think I, Amy, I think that's that's a wonderful observation and reaction to the to the speech. And I think what what really is the the thing that gives me kind of a, a gut punch in this section is William's speech about all those legs and arms and heads yeah. chopped off in a battle. Like that is horrific. Like that is horrific imagery and this idea of them all sort of like crawling and crying upon the things they've left behind and as you say like there's something very you know if he he I think he clearly is a husband and a father this guy Mm -hmm. because the first thing he goes to is the wives left poor behind them and the children that were left too soon you know and there is something much Mm -hmm. more sort of immediate and and grounded about his argument than than Henry's which has to do with um you know, theological philosophy. Um, And, and, and there is something, you know, I, I love the, the perilous shot out of an, I I just realized as you read it that um, 
that the perilous shot out of an elder gun, right, is 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 a is a wonderful antithesis that like a pop gun is like shooting out a cannonball or something. Right. You're like, right. you're just saying shit now, you know? yeah. <laughs> which is great, yeah. which is great. But I, I do um, I do get the sense because not so much Richard II, but these three last plays in the trilogy have so much to do with social class. There's so much about the different social classes and the different ways in which they live and the different ways in which they're treated that this to me is like this guy sort of is a representation of all these people who don't have a choice because that's that's essentially what Henry is saying is like you have a choice the way in which you live and this guy's like yeah but we didn't have a choice to come here or not you know they were just pressed into service mm-hmm. um which is an interesting, you know, counter kind of argument. Well, um, and even just because you brought up Richard II, this little prose speech, the first little chunk here where he says, you know, I think the king is but a man as I am, that whole Henry appealing to like everyone's humanity speech yeah, does really remind me of Richard II in the, you know, I live with bread like you. And it's great because neither of them really work. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because they're such like tender, beautiful speeches, or I think we think of them in that way now, you know, like appealing to everyone's humanity, but to these people. And also, I mean, in Richard II, it's like too little, too late at that point, (laughs) but here it's like celebrities. They're just like us. It's like that, like that's sort of how it comes across. And I like that we see in a way it makes you like Henry, I'll just speak personally. In a way, it makes me like Henry more to see him so out of his element and sort of like fucking up in front of everybody because you can only hear the chorus be like, he's the greatest man who ever lived. Like you can only hear that so many times where you're like, okay, we get it. Like he's amazing. And you know, like his speeches always work. He Like it always gets the job done. He's been like, you know, saying this, be- these beautiful speeches for the whole play and they always work and they always convince the people to, you know, and here it's like the first time it doesn't work and it's kind of refreshing. Yes. To see him like so torn and dealing with the reality of the situation, which is that these people could die and he probably won't. So I, I love that. And I can, I can really feel like it's moments like this when you feel like what the audience would have felt like at the Globe or something like that. Like you would think that they would be siding more with the common people um, yeah. when Henry's like, well, no, it's, you know, I'm just like you. <laughs> Does so this really place strike yeah. anyone else as like authorially didactic a little bit? He's <laughs> it, almost instructional at points. Like this is how you should be patriotic. Oh, interesting. Um, I usually- like not in- condescending way but in a way that I'm sure was pleasing to his patrons well I think what what is always so skillful about Shakespeare is his way that it can be interpreted either way right I mean like one of my favorite uh, demonstrations of this is the play Coriolanus right which um, depending on what your politics are is either anti- fascist or anti-populist and pro-fascist like depending on 
how you play it, depending on who you make the sympathetic figure, it can be either way. And it's completely kind of up to interpretation, I think, in a certain. So I would I would argue that in most plays, that's what Shakespeare is doing is sort of balancing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I think that's what we get with with this contrast of, of Williams and King Henry. Right. Of uh, that, these these two, uh, they're they're both given very strong arguments. Um, and then I think that's this, true. It's not uh, one sided. Yeah, it's usually never one sided. Um, and that this interaction is what sort of bounds Henry into this next speech, which I think is one of his strongest speeches in the whole. And one of the only times we actually see him alone. And it's much more bitter than any of the public speeches. You know, it's it's much is a different kind of speech. And, and on that note, let's jump right into it. <laughs> and we'll just go right through the, the end of the scene. Whenever you're ready, Andrew. Hmm. Upon the king, let us our lives, our souls, our debts, our careful wives, our children, and our sins lay on the king. We must bear all. Oh, hard condition twin born with greatness subject to the breath of every fool whose sense no more can feel but his own ringing what infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy and what have kings that privates have not too save ceremony save general ceremony and what art thou thou idle ceremony what kind of God art thou that sufferest more of mortal griefs than do thy worshippers? What are thy rents? What are thy comings in? Uh, oh, ceremony, show me but thy worth. What? Is thy soul of adoration? Art thou aught else but place, degree, and form, creating awe and fear in other men? Wherein thou art less happy being feared than they in fearing? What drinks thou oft, instead of homage, sweet, but poisoned flattery? Uh, <laughs> be sick, great greatness, and bid thy ceremony give thee cure. Think'st thou the fiery fever will go out with titles blown from adulation? Will it give place to flexure and low bending? Canst thou, when thou commandst the beggar's knee, command the health of it? No, thou proud dream that placed so subtly with a king's repose i am a king that find thee and i know tis not the balm the scepter and the ball the mace the sword the crown imperial the intertissued robe of golden pearl the farced title running for the king the throne he sits on nor the tide of pomp that beats upon the high shore of this world no not all these thrice gorgeous ceremony not all these laid in bed majestical can sleep so soundly as the wretched slave who with a body filled and vacant mind gets him to rest crammed with distressful bread, never sees the horrid night, the child of hell, but like a lackey from the rise to set, sweats in the eye of Phoebus, and all night sleeps in Elysium. Next day after dawn doth rise and help Hyperion to his horse, and follows so the ever-running year with profitable labor to his grave. And but for ceremony, such a wretch, 
winding up days with toil and nights with sleep, had the forehand and vantage of a king. The slave, a member of the country's peace, enjoys it, but in gross brain little wots what watch the king keeps to maintain the peace, whose hours the peasant best advantages. My lord, your nobles, jealous of your absence, seek through your camp to find you. Good old knight, collect them all together at my tent. I'll be before thee. I shall do it, my lord. Oh, god of battles, steal my soldiers' hearts. Possess them not with fear. Take from them now the sense of reckoning ere the opposed numbers pluck their hearts from them. Not today, O oh Lord. Oh, not today. Think not upon the fault my father made encompassing the crown. I, Richard's body, have interred new, and on it have bestowed more contrite tears than from it issued forced drops of blood. Five hundred poor I have in yearly pay, who twice a day their withered hands hold up toward heaven to pardon blood. And I have built two chantries, where the sad and solemn priests still sing for Richard's soul, soul, more will I do, though all that I can do is nothing worth, since that my penitence comes after all, imploring pardon. My liege. My brother Gloucester's voice. I, I know thy errand, I will go with thee. The day, my friend, and all things stay for me. Phew. Beautifully read, Andrew. Um, that last line is like, I don't know, there's such a, a weariness to it. Like, well, I guess ceremony has its weight. <laughs> like, it's all dependent on me now, what I have to do, which is quite something. What are, what are your thoughts after uh, reading through this? First, I wanted to respond about that last line and how it, it, it's kind of one of those places where the, the text plays around with time, that mm. until this scene is done, the, the day can't truly dawn and the battle begin. Um, that yeah. this little moment out of time in the in the dead of night has to happen. Obviously, it's a play. That's <laughs> how it works. But um, it gives you that sense of of pulling a moment out of time, uh, and uh, certain realizations, certain um, changes in uh, who the, who Henry is. Realizations have to happen before the the action can move on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, it's the whole scene has a great arc to it that leads to this. Um, this moment, uh, this speech uh, that I guess is self-criticism. I, I mean, it sounds kind of whiny when you, <laughs> if you, <laughs> if you uh, and and obviously it, it it's it's difficult, I think for it to play with, with uh, truth um, now for a king who's obviously uh, led a very um, a certain type of life to be comparing himself in the life that someone who labors all day uh, uh, to, to see that as a, 
a freer life to his. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that. I think <laughs> yeah. that's what I mean about this like um, propaganda aspect of the play. Is and I we can only view it through a contemporary viewpoint, but like, oh, it's so hard to be the king. It just <laughs> doesn't play right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can say as a you know lower middle class person living in 2021 and you know who's on the throne right now you know like I don't I don't buy that for a second Mm. but but to me it seems like Shakespeare three-dimensionalizing these great figures for the benefit of the monarchy I don't know and, and, and it, it, he does have a point, you know, it's not that it's not not hard to be the king, <laughs> but yeah, like, like oh, Andrew said, it does seem a little whiny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does, um, as he always does, he's humanizing someone. Right. Uh, by, by pointing out how... Um, I don't know, in a kind of uh, Buddhist way, we, we all live in our own kind of hell. Uh, and even if we're living in a castle, in a, a palace, um, life and the fact that it ends it is hell. Uh, so it's great in that sense, but it is hard to to hear it as someone who's not a king. Well, and I guess all that, you know, this was you know, before the Industrial Revolution. So I think especially the thing about comparing himself to a laborer, to a slave is like that it, it just has a bad taste in its mouth in the 21st century, but was probably different, uh, at least a little bit. So back then in this in this time period, it meant peasant. It um, right. the the root of the word I think is Slav, which literally referred to like Russian peasants. But they right. they had a pretty horrible life too. I mean, no, none of these none of these a, a laborer, somebody like Williams or Bates would they they, they would not have good right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lives. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, and I think. Uh, there is such a, it seems to be a family trait of the inability to sleep um, because there's Mm. a wonderful, wonderful uh, speech about instead of comparing to a a laborer or a peasant, um, King Henry IV, this Henry's father has this amazing speech about comparing uh this poor little ship boy who's like at the top of a mast in the middle of a storm but he's still able to sleep because he's so exhausted um and here's the king with beautiful music and perfumed air and a soft bed and he can't sleep and he has a lot of really interesting language about that that fortune never gives with two hands like she you know she doesn't give food she gives hunger but not food to the poor and she gives food but not appetite to the rich and there's this really interesting there's a really interesting um balancing act i think that is continued here of like Mm. i do have the robe the crown imperial you know the, the all of this 
And again, it, it, to me, there's a, it's a strange transition because it goes to ceremony sucks and it's worthless, but then it transitions into, and I can't sleep, you know, and like, mm-hmm. I haven't been able to sleep and it's, it's hard for me to sort of pinpoint like why that changes in the, in the speech and, and where that changes, I guess. Yeah. But I, I yeah. Oh, I was just to say, it is interesting, like hearing everyone talk about how in a contemporary lens this um, monologue just like feels weird because I feel the same like weirdness in my stomach like reading it but I have been I have been re-watching Downton Abbey because that's just what I've been wanting to do and there is a small part of me who like looks at like the servants in the the show and I'm like that sounds like a nice simpler life to lead right now all I care about is like making someone's bed perfectly so like I did feel weird listening to this monologue but I also understand just like wanting to just have like a simpler life and wanting to just like toil the earth from like sun up to sundown and just be able to be so exhausted if you just go to sleep and then your world is smaller so I understand like the one thing for a smaller world, a smaller kingdom, like just being your house and your plot of land than what he's going through. And I wonder if he got to that portion of sleep just because he was thinking about everything that comes with a kingdom. Like, you know, you get the house and you get everything. And they eventually he's like, and then you even get this big bed that I can't even use because because I can't even like sleep. I can't even like luxuriate in it. So it's like kind of interesting absolutely and and yeah that that um (laughs) uh the sort of idea the sort of philosophy behind the king i think i mentioned it briefly before but is the idea that when you become the king you're really no longer a person you are your country like your country you are the country embodied so what that sort of means and i guess to me what's interesting about this too is like right the king there's no step it's not like your day job right like there's no sort of (laughs) stepping away from it and separating it from your personality like you are the king that is the be all end all of your existence so to me what's interesting about this is the bitterness of contemplating of this separation between the title and the self and that uh ultimately when you do that it's really about it's it's sort of to me like a commentary on status right that status is really what other people give to you as opposed to the way you interact with other people like if other people give you status you'll have status but if they don't treat you with status you won't have it right it's not so much as like walking into a room and being super confident if people don't respond to it you've just walked into a room and been super confident you know so i think there's an interesting it's an interesting reflection on the sort of, you know, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, as his father said. There's, there's, uh, the crown seems to be something that, that is, is so full. I mean, we use the, the word weight um, when we were talking about Act Three that just weighs down to the point where it is entirely your identity is this symbol. Which is, which is an interesting thing to think about someone who was so, who had such a free personality when he was the prince, you know, and could hang out with whomever he wanted to. But there's, there's something, you know, the, the, um, 
when he was Prince Hal, he's looking at his father's crown and he said, this is like wearing armor in the summer. It's scalding you with safety. Like there's something very dangerous about this and it, and it hurts the wearer. So to me, it's an interesting continuation of his, of his sort of father's ideas about the crown and about the, the title. Um, and it also, yeah, it's, it, but what's so wonderful, right, is that it holds all of these complexities and all of this like uncomfortableness. And um, when you hear this speech, which I, I think is good, I, I, I like it when like we're, we're, we're made to <laughs> sort of think and be like, well, I don't know about that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's what makes it good. That's what yeah. makes it not two dimensional or not fall flat. Yeah. I mean, and also we have to remember like, they're all here because he he was like, I'm not happy enough with just being king of England. I'm also <laughs> king of France. Like they're all Truth. here because he was he was a fucking greedy Gus and he was like, I could probably do this for two countries, not just one. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, uh Canterbury and and really well, you could argue that they were just really good at convincing him that <laughs> they were the the impetus. But- also, again, to connect it, like he's coming from a country that was just killed itself with civil war and his father's dying advice to him was go for some foreign quarrels and all the civil strife will be forgotten. So in a way, he's getting rid of one kind of violence in his kingdom and replacing it with another. Um, there seems to be, yeah. This is a little off topic, but we were talking earlier about comparisons to Hamlet and especially with the um, how when they were written, but it's interesting, you know, between that play and this, we have two kings praying um, Mm. and they're they're wildly different and yet have some through lines of like, what what am I even doing anything like, you know, like almost. Um, and I just, I just found that jump out at me a little bit since we were just talking about Hamlet there and, you know, it's, it's not just prayer speech, it's specifically Kings praying. Yeah. Well, in the inner turmoil that both of them sort of express yeah. as well. Absolutely. Um, and it kind of seems like they're both, at least to me, they're both um, unsuccessful prayers that the, yeah. the balm that one expects or desires out of the prayer does not come uh, obviously to Claudius, but I don't think to Henry here either. Yeah. And this extraordinary speech at the end where you talk about what you've done with Richard II's body, mm. like, it's, whoa. <laughs> I, I mean, it's I almost like say, he's making a pact with God. It's like, look at, I, you know, don't blame me for what my dad did. Look at all these things I'm doing, you know. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm paying these people to, to do this every day to Richard's body, but it's, but it's almost, I mean, that to me makes him more human where you get to the point where I'll make a pact with God. Yeah. Yeah. I will do anything to, to get through this. Don't, don't make these other people suffer for something my dad did, which then took me back to the beginning of the scene where he's talking to William and he talks about, you know, would you get mad at the father for sending um, uh, the son out to do something? And it kind of, it just, 
and maybe I'm misinterpreting that that first part of the speech, but it's kind of like he goes back and forth. You wouldn't change. You wouldn't blame the son. Don't blame the son for what the father has done. Um, mm. I don't know. It's just absolutely. Yeah. It is very interesting that for such a long scene with so many long speeches, at the end, uh, it comes back to the point, the thing that's really bothering him and has been bothering him for who knows how long uh, in this relatively short uh, speech that it, to me is um, finally utterly relevatory re uh, of what's going on inside him, his, his deepest fear. Mm. Mm -hmm. all that i can do is nothing worth since that my penitence comes after all imploring pardon that's mm. i mean wow that's that's quite a statement to say right before you're about to potentially die <laughs> like um yeah and i guess just to transition here we go from that level of complexity <laughs> To the French saying, we look so cool. We're so hot. Mm -hmm. Horses. <laughs> and we go back to their horses, them and their horses. So well, let's, let's like, go. Oh, so, sorry, Ariana. I just oh, wanted please. to do one last thing. Oh, please. And also, so like, I read the end of this scene just as like someone having a total mental breakdown, which mm. I think is why I like this speech a lot, because he his mind just like jumps to all of these places and I feel like what everyone has just been telling him is like really we actually see the toll it's taken for the first yeah. time um and he is jumping from you know oh it's all my fault is it to then like I wish I was just a peasant to then like <laughs> I'm so sorry please god please like <laughs> please I you know like it's it's totally whack like if yeah. you actually go through, there's no real way to like track even what you were saying. Like, how does he get to the bit about how he can't sleep? Like, where yeah. does that come from? And it's the, I think it's the, what you were saying, Ariana, earlier about like the, or I forget who was saying, but just the tension of that pre-battle. It's like bringing us back into like, everyone's going to go die. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And that's why I love it. And there's a really great, a YouTube clip of Mark Rylance doing it at the Globe. And I think he does it sort of with that interpretation, which I am mm. just very partial to. So that's all I wanted to say. Very cool. I love, yeah, I love it. Well, and we, uh, we always love Mark Rylance. So. <laughs> um, I was, no, no, just yeah. <laughs> I was So back to the French and the horses and the suns and um, some extraordinary now what they do get in what the french do get in this next little scene is incredible imagery um so let's uh let's have fun listening to that whenever you're ready my friends the sun doth gild our armor up my lords montez a cheval my horse varley lackey aha oh brave spirits via les eaux et terre Rien plus, l'air et feu. Sire, cousin Orléans. Uh, now, my lord constable. Hark how our steeds for present service nay. Mount them and make incision in their hides that their hot blood may spin in English eyes and doubt them with superfluous courage. Ha! Huh. 
What, will you have them weep our horses' blood? How shall we then behold their natural tears? The English are embattled, your French peers. To horse, you gallant princes, straight to horse. Do but behold yon poor and starved band, and your fair show shall suck away their souls, leaving them but the shales and husks of men. There is not work enough for all our hands, scarce blood enough in all their sickly veins to give each naked curdlax a stain that our French gallants shall today draw out and sheathe for lack of sport. Let us but blow on them. The vapor of our valor will o'erturn them. Tis positive against all exceptions, lords, that our superfluous lackeys and our peasants, who in unnecessary action swarm about our squares of battle, were enough to purge this field of such a hilding foe. Though we upon this mountain spaces by took stand for idle speculation, but that our honors must not. What's to say? A very little, little let us do and all is done. Then let the trumpet sound, the tucket sonance, and the note to mount, for our approach shall so much dare the field that England shall couch down in fear and yield. Why do you stay so long, my lords of France? Yon island carrions, desperate of their bones, ill-favoredly become the mourning field. Their ragged curtains poorly are let loose, and our air shakes them passing scornfully. Big Mars seems bankrupt in their beggared host, and faintly through a rusty beaver peeps. The horsemen sit like fixed candlesticks with torch staves in their hand, and their poor jades lob down their heads, dropping the hides and hips, the gum down roping from their pale dead eyes, and in their pale dull mouths the gemmeled bit lies foul with chawed grass, still and motionless. And their executors, the knavish crows, fly o'er them all, impatient for their hour. Description cannot suit itself in words to demonstrate the life of such a battle, in life so lifeless as it shows itself. They have said their prayers, and they stay for death. Shall we go send them dinners and fresh suits, and give their fasting horses provender, and after fight with them? I stay but for my guard. On to the field. I will the banner from a trumpet take and use it for my haste. Come, come away. The sun is high and we outwear the day. That is a remarkable description of how sort of downtrodden the English army are. And also this, the, the Dauphins like cut our horses hide so that the blood like spins in the english eyes whoa man that is imaginative oh my god <laughs> um yeah thoughts <laughs> yeah it's it's some scary language i going through it i couldn't tell if this should be more intense or like comedic blind confidence like we've had in the earlier scenes mm -hmm. um and at least from with with the Dauphin, it's 
like his, his lines pale in comparison to the rest of these be beautiful speeches. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I guess it's odd to see these previously very comic characters suddenly be dealing with uh, the tone that we tend to have seen with our other cast of characters. Mm, absolutely, that there is, they, they are kind of ferocious in this scene, which I, I think it is important to kind of establish them as like a real threat um, before the scene. Otherwise we're like, oh, of course the English, will. they're way too overconfident, but they, um, there's, there's something really, really dark about the imagery in this scene and really like disturbing about the sort of anticipation of this violence and this slaughter that's about to happen. Um, yeah, I just, that, that, that was really I nice. feel it, it paints the French kind of doubly as cowards because they're mm. bragging about how much more manpower they have, which mm -hmm. doesn't make it a, a fair fight at, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, the way I view it is just that, that they're, they're bragging about nothing. You know, it's so much mm. nothing. It's so empty. Well, and there's, there's a great line that, that Henry says in the next scene where he says, why are they mocking us like this? Like, this is not, this isn't honorable to mock us in this way. Like, we're clearly in a much worse situation than they are. Um, but yeah, there, there is a, I love this, the, the constable, the vapor of our valor. I mean, there's just so many little turns of phrases like that, that, that are really, um, really quite, quite fun. Um, but yeah, weeping horse blood. I mean, whoa, this is yet another seeming abuse of our, <laughs> of our cavalry animals here. I have a small question, Ariana. Yeah, of course. We probably covered this um, in Act 3, but I just have a question. How many people in the audience would know French? Like In, in Shakespeare's audience? Yeah. That's a wonderful question. In Shakespeare's audience, probably only the courtiers. That's what I figured. Yeah. I feel like if I was seeing the show and I was just uh, just a groundling, I would be kind of put off in a way. I mean, I oh, guess yeah. it like makes sense, but I would just be like, I feel like I would be like, oh, yes, they get to go see the show. And then I'd be like, well, I can understand some of it. Like, what, what the fuck, Shakes? Yeah. <laughs> there <laughs> so is an interesting, yeah, there is a sort of interesting separation of like the accessibility of the language, right? And that, um, that there is this kind of, I mean, because I I don't I don't speak French at all, um, and I I can understand Spanish. I have a lot more trouble actually speaking it. But I there are certain things because they're both these Latin based languages that I can pick up and go, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. But every time I've seen uh, Henry V, it's really interesting the difference between American audiences who I feel like many more of them. Spanish would be the second language that would be known. And then in Britain, where French is definitely a language that a lot of people learn because it's like their closest neighbor, essentially, besides Ireland, where they share a language, um, that there are so many more laughs during the French scenes, I have noticed, in the UK, because so many more people like speak French. Um, or have it at least an understanding of French than, than I've seen in, in productions uh, uh, here in the States, which is just an interesting little 
Um, but yeah, the accessibility, I know just to, to bring Mark Rylance back into the conversation because we love talking about him, um, that when I know when he was Hamlet, he would do something really extraordinary where he would, he would sort of turn his back on the groundlings during some of the soliloquies and was like very much, I just knocked over my lamp, was very much like to the court, to the, I, I don't know actually exactly which bits that happened, but he was definitely playing around with who gets access like to this language and to this, these moments, um, which I think is, a, is, is always a fascinating uh, question to ask as a director is like, you know, there are classes of where you sit, you know, when you're an audience and, you know, myself usually only going for the cheapest tickets, you know, you see a different show than the people who pay like a hundred bucks, you know, to see the show. So I just looked it up. Um, I'm at an, I'm looking at an article at T and F online. Uh, they quote David Crystal though, so I'm assuming it's legit. <laughs> but anyway, um, and I I wasn't aware that this is this was a overlap. But this is talking about how um, the use of different language in the Henry and particularly Henry the Fifth is actually deliberate because it was very much the fashion. Mm. to have plays that had different language and looking at like Commedia dell'arte where they've got Gromlot where no one is speaking you know no one can understand they all understand equally poorly so that's yeah. a really interesting way to look at that I'd never thought about it before but that's kind of cool that is really cool and you know we get we get uh because Zoe was my lovely lady Mortimer and actually learned like the Welsh um in Henry the fourth part one, that's another moment where like only a few people like have the, know the language. Right. And um, there's, there's a lot of othering moments with the audience as well as characters that get othered, which is just an interesting, an interesting um, thing. Um, shall we jump back over to, to our English to, to four, three with maybe one of the most famous speeches in the Canon boom. Uh, yeah, let's just jump right in and, and have and have this uh, have this fun, and we'll end with this with this. Where's the king? The king himself is rode to view their battle. Of fighting men, they have full three score thousand. There's five to one. Besides, they all are fresh. God's arms strike with us. Tis a fearful odds. God be with you, princes and all. I'll to my charge, if we no more meet till we meet in heaven, then joyfully, my noble Lord of Bedford, my dear Gloucester, and my good Lord Exeter, and my kind kinsmen, warriors, all adieu. Farewell, good Salisbury, and good luck go with thee. Farewell, kind Lord, fight valiantly today, and yet I do thee wrong to mind thee of it, for thou art framed of the firm truth of valor. He is as full of valor as of kindness, princely in both. Uh, that we now had here but one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland, no, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. 
By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear, such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No, faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honor as one man more methinks would share from me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford, and Exeter, Warwick, and Talbot, Salisbury, and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. My sovereign Lord, bestow yourself with speed. The French are bravely in their battle set and will with all expedients charge on us. All things are ready if our minds be so. Perish the man whose mind is backward now. Thou dost not wish more help from England, cuz? God's will, my liege, would you and I alone without more help could fight this royal battle. Fine, now thou hast unwished five thousand men, which likes me better than to wish us one. You know your places. God be with you all. Once more I come to know of thee, King Harry, if for thy ransom thou wilt now compound before thy most assured overthrow. For certainly thou art so near the gulf thou needs must be englutted. Besides, in mercy the constable desires thee. Thou wilt mind thy followers of repentance that their souls may make a peaceful and a sweet retire from off these fields, where, wretches, their poor bodies must lie and fester. Who hath sent thee now? The constable of France. I pray thee bear my former answer back. Bid them achieve me and then sell my bones. Good God, why should they mock poor fellows thus? The man that once did sell the lion's skin while the beast lived was killed with hunting him. 
Many of our bodies shall no doubt find native graves, upon the which I trust shall witness live in brass of this day's work. Those that leave their valiant bones in France, dying like men, though buried in your dunghills, they shall be famed, for there the sun shall greet them and draw their honors reeking up to heaven, leaving their earthly parts to choke your climb. The smell whereof shall breed a plague in France. Mark then abounding valor in our English, that being dead, like to the bullets crazing, break out into a second course of mischief, killing in relapse of mortality. Let me speak proudly. Tell the co constable we are but warriors for the working day. Our gayness and our guilt are all besmirched with rainy marching in the painful field. There's not a piece of feather in our host. Good argument, I hope we will not fly. And time hath worn us into slovenry. But by the mass, our hearts are in the trim. And my poor soldiers tell me yet ere night they'll be in fresher robes, or they will pluck the gay new coats or the French soldiers' heads and turn them out of service. If they do this, as if God please they shall, my ransom then will soon be levied. Herald, save thou thy labor. Come thou no more for ransom, gentle herald. They shall have none, I swear, but these, my joints which, if they have them, as I will leave them them, shall yield them little. Tell the constable. I shall, King Harry, and so fare thee well. Thou never shalt hear Harold any more. I fear thou wilt once more come for a ransom. My lord, most humbly on my knee, I beg the leading of the vanguard. Take it, brave York. Now, soldiers, march away. And how thou pleasest, God dispose the day. Right. So very different scene, obviously. Um, it's interesting the different ways in which uh, the armies pump themselves up. Um, in the previous scene, we sort of had two different pump ups of like, we're so great. We've got more stuff and the English are screwed. And this one like starts with, you know, yeah, we're screwed. <laughs> so let's go out blazing. Um, we're blazed, you know, either way. Um, I think there's a, I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to know sort of where to begin with this supremely uh, famous speech. Thoughts? <laughs> it's just interesting when you hear like, things that are still resonant in the contemporary lexicon like band of brothers you go oh yeah that's where that came from Shakespeare of course <laughs> or even <laughs> the few I was like is that where the marines got it the few the proud you know I don't know because that's the slogan of the U.S. marines oh wow I didn't the know few, that. the proud the marines something yeah. like that yeah the band of brothers now on HBO. I think that the transition for Henry from where we just saw him to this is kind of extraordinary. Um, Andrew, did you have any sort of experiences of sort of ending with that <laughs> speech and then entering yeah. with this one? I was going to mention exactly that, which, and, and just to say, I, to me, it feels as if something's missing, mm. which means that I, I'm probably poorly understanding 
um, something that has been written. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I don't know how you get from the end of the, the, his previous scene to here. I, I have a suspicion that there's, that he's still not done yet. And maybe in the, uh, that there's a way for uh, St. Crispin's Day, the speech to, to be the, the final thing he needs to convince himself Mm. Um, as we've been talking about, uh, his doubts have to be set aside in order for, for him to serve the, uh, his men as he needs to. Um, and at the end of the last scene, I, I really don't think he's there. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Um, to me, this scene feels very much like the previous scene was him like his prep work in the dressing room before going on stage. Like there's something about this speech that just feels like the curtains open and it's like big breath. And then it's like, it's almost like he knows he has to do this and he wasn't sure if he could. And it takes saying this speech out loud to convince himself but he knows that it's not really for him. It's for the other, it's important for his army, but that he really believes it by the end. And then we get this incredible anti-climax of like, he's like, all right, God be with you all. And the French, you know, Montjoy comes in and is like, so about that ransom. And he's like, oh, for fuck's sake, I just got them all revved up. You just, ah, oh, damn it. You know, like there's such a funny sort of like, cutting him off at the knees like that would have been such a triumphant exit but i love that there's still like he's got to give another speech it's like oh man and now i gotta top what i just said and keep everyone revved up like it's just it's a tall ask uh he does it um (laughs) he does you talk about transition uh from last scene to this one and i i say i feel as if something's missing but but maybe it's simply, uh, as you say, it's in the show. And it, it really is, if the Lords are on, if Salisbury and Bedford and Exeter are on stage uh, talking about the situation and Henry's almost lurking, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, slightly off and here's that Westmoreland line, that's the transition. It's, yeah. this is my way in to the, the speech that is going to save us today, that's going to rally us. Um, and so he has, uh, whatever that is, two lines uh, of eavesdropping in which yeah. to make that transition, which is totally possible if you're uh, Burbage or, or whoever um, played this. Yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting, right, that he enters before his line, right? And that no one clearly notices him. Otherwise, Westmoreland wouldn't say this in front of him. So it's like written in, it's kind of like written into the script that like he he needs to overhear that in order to provoke this response. Um, which is traditionally, you know, in this sort of cinematic tradition is obviously always was used sort of as a propaganda film when Laurence Olivier um did his film version of this which is to this gigantic field of extras and Ken Branagh's is not quite as big but still like a pretty 
big uh, group of people and they took it into a very different direction with the hollow crown where Tom Hiddleston is really saying this speech to like these five guys. Uh, but there is also, and it seems like it could be to these five guys, but then there's also that line about be he ne'er so vile. So if he was only speaking to the nobility, then that line wouldn't really resonate or make a lot of sense to me. But, but that's, that's just my opinion. But Andrew, where, did you have something else? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually thinking about that. I, I kind of, um, I know it's a great, uh, speech when you give it to 10,000 guys or whatever, but uh, <laughs> I do think it's, it's really not that, but it is um, pumping up the, the people who are leading the different segments of the yeah. army and, the, and for the Lords. And he does say, uh, proclaim it through the host. And that's, exactly. um, and obviously they can't all hear you because you don't have a megaphone <laughs> unless you're standing on a hill. Except a for Flewellen who has a megaphone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I do think it is meant to be for, I think you're right, Andrew. I think it is meant to be for the leaders, but that, that one line has always made me think like, oh, maybe there's, there's more people, but there's of course no stage direction that says there's more people than his brothers, like literally his two brothers, his, and two of his uncles and but it, then it says Erpingham with all his host. So maybe it's like a couple, a couple people, <laughs> but um, yeah. And then this, I do also just want to very briefly touch upon this, this second speech that he has to give in response to the, to the Herald asking for ransom. Cause it's a very different speech. Um, and it does seem like he wouldn't, say this in front of his soldiers like oh yeah they're going to be buried in dung hills and <laughs> but you know what they're going to rise up and they're going to create a plague in france because their valor will have ascended but their bodies are going to rot here it's just like we're just we're just getting all the gross images out in the open here yeah. i feel like henry had like a night where none of his rhetoric really like landed because he was with all the the other people who like didn't really get how he was talking and he felt like very out of place so i feel like now he was finally able to like really lash out at someone who like understood <laughs> what he was saying and so i think he like really like let it for <laughs> with like all of the I love that. <laughs> that's awesome it is kind of a good old-fashioned uh, a threat um <laughs> you know like come and get me we're gonna take your your fancy coats and we're gonna put them over your heads or whatever we're gonna do. <laughs> we're gonna steal we're your gonna... clothing. <laughs> um and if you do kill us, our rotting bodies will cause plague. That's a pretty <laughs> gnarly threat, really. It is a gnarly threat. Well, and and also because they're all sick too, right? They've all been like marching and they're sickened, and a lot of them, and in fact, Henry V himself probably died of dysentery. Like a lot of them had these fairly mundane uh bodily complaints but they could in this time period be very fatal so there's you know they're just ugh, they, these guys just need like they need a bath and like a proper toilet facilities like <laughs> some nice food um but yeah 
The funny thing is we will see the Herald again in the middle of the battle, which I love. He's like, you will never see me again. And then like two scenes later, he's like, I'm back. <laughs> like, it's, it's a really great little like false exit um, that, that, <laughs> that happens there. Um, but so this was, this was the first part of act four. This is the, the pre-battle scene. So um, yeah. Thank you all very much for, for going through these, these complex scenes. Uh, 